The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn News. From the news team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday. As the editor-in-chief at Lifehacker, Alan Henry had written about every kind of productivity hack. To-do lists, time blocking, collaboration tools. It wasn't until he got to his next job that he learned something that was game-changing. I had a colleague who had a no-meeting Tuesday. He was doing it, and it was great for him. It worked out great for him. And people kind of respected that, that he was focused and he was driven. So Alan tried to do that, too. I called it my no-meeting Thursdays or something like that. And I realized that people just booked over me. They just didn't ask. And then when I pushed back to say, hey, I I have my calendar blocked off. I do this on Thursdays. You know, I'd focus on editing and other things that I was doing. They would be like, well, this is the only time everyone else can meet. Why can't you meet? And they would just kind of make it out like the time that I spent to organize my schedule meant less to them than getting what they wanted out of me. Alan felt the people he worked with didn't respect his time in the same way. It was a sentiment he heard from other Black colleagues. And that was when it started to really hit home that a lot of the things, a lot of these tools that I was trading in, I couldn't use and other people couldn't use also. Today, Alan is the service editor at Wired and he's just published a new book. It's called Seen, Heard, and Paid, the New Work Rules for the Marginalized. Today on Hello Monday, we'll talk to him about why most productivity hacks don't work for people like him. He'll also share a new set of productivity hacks for being successful in the workplace as it exists today. Here's Alan. When I realized that, I said to myself, okay, what can I do then? How do I frame these tips in a way that works for everyone? Or how do I at least acknowledge the social baggage that I'm carrying and that other people, I would say of color, but also anyone who's marginalized in the workplace, the baggage that we carry in a way that helps us get ahead? How do we apply those tips in a way that works for us? And how do we reject the ones that don't and try something different instead? Right. Well, so you tell that story and... This is where I think the idea of gaslighting Mm -hmm. can really cripple a person. And you talk about this. I imagine that the moment that that all happened, your brain did not immediately say, I am being targeted here because there are things that are different about me. Perhaps, I could be wrong, perhaps your brain said, oh, dear, there's a problem with me. Mm -hmm. That's exactly how it was. The New York Times story was one of the big ones in my mind. But the first time I realized something was really wrong was when... Lifehacker was acquired by Univision, and I had to meet our new then CEO. And he had scheduled one-on-one meetings with all of the other site editors-in-chief. He had uh, made a point to introduce himself and get familiar with their brand and everything that they did, except me and except Lifehacker. And part of it I just blamed on, oh, we're mostly a remote team, so maybe that's why. Or, But I was in the New York office. I had just been promoted to editor-in-chief maybe a year prior. And everybody had loved my work and everybody loved my ideas, but I just couldn't get this guy's attention. And it was after a big sales meeting where we had to present our stats and numbers to a whole bunch of Univision salespeople that I kind of stood next to him for a while, just trying to 
position myself in his field of view to get his attention. And he just would not acknowledge me at all until a white coworker of mine came along, another staffer at Lifehacker, uh, and then just kind of stood directly in front of him and said, hi, I'm so-and-so, this is my boss, our editor, so-and-so. And then he kind of acknowledged that I was even there. Now, looking back on that, I can say, okay, I understand what he had a problem with. Either he had a problem with me or he had his own social baggage where he thought this black man standing in front of me couldn't possibly be someone that I need to pay attention to right now. But then at that moment, I didn't think any of that. I thought, what am I doing wrong? Maybe I'm not assertive enough. Maybe I don't advocate for my team hard enough. Maybe I'm just not right for this role. You know, maybe somebody, it should be somebody with a bigger mouth than me. One of the things that I appreciate about your book and thinking about the book as a handbook is that systemic racism, systemic sexism, all of the homophobia that we find in our environments, every way in which we judge people who are different, we can mistakenly individualize it and yeah. we should address the individual experience. Yeah. But truthfully, this is a systemic issue. The very offices that we go to work in, the very environments that we contribute to the culture of are laced with systemic challenges. Yeah. And so what you're advancing is a path forward for someone who wants to succeed and to thrive anyhow. Yeah. Right? That's the plan, anyway. The book is written squarely at marginalized folks with some tips for everyone. Right. And I say this a lot. Marginalization is for everyone. You know, marginalization is for women in male-dominated workplaces. It's for disabled people in every workspace. You know what I mean? So I write the books for the people who have to succeed anyway. But it is not the responsibility of the marginalized person to fix systemic issues that lead to them being marginalized. They don't have the power. And even if they are present, like it's, we talk about having a seat at the table, if you have a seat at the table but you're not empowered to speak, you're not safe to speak, then you're really just kind of a stand-in or you're worse, you're a token. And no one wants to be that. So, yeah, I wanted to write these tips specifically for people who were in these positions, realized it, and then said, okay – How do I move myself forward regardless? When do I know it's time to leave this role and find some place that will treat me better or give me a different opportunity or put me in a room where I am empowered to speak? Or how do I campaign for myself in a way that walks that delicate line between dealing with other people's prejudices of who you are, but also doing your best work and making sure everyone knows that you're doing your best work? What are the thoughts in here that were most helpful to you in moving your own career forward? Mm. One thing that I recommend to everyone that is super powerful, has been super powerful for me, is this concept of the work diary. The work diary to me is a running document. Mine's a Google Doc. Some people use paper notebooks, which is great. Um, It's a running Google Doc of what my wins this week were, what my challenges this week were, even the small wins, right? I published a story about whatever. That goes on the list. the, the things I stumbled over and what I want to do about them, who I worked with this week that I really enjoyed working with, that I had a great time with, who is giving me a hard time, stuff like that. Um, and then what you have as you start to collect that work diary and you fill it in week to week to week or however often is most easy for you to fill it in is a running tally of the things that people ask you in job interviews, the things that you need to update your resume. Like you have, you have projects you worked on and skills that you developed 
on your work diary. They're ready to port directly over to your resume, right? Right. You have an answer for that question in any interview. Like, tell me about a challenge that you faced and how you overcame it. You know, you have an answer to that because it's on your work diary. You don't have to rack your mind for answers to these things. Or or to be um, sort of even more in the granular day-to-day. Yeah. Uh, every six months or so, when it's time for your manager to give you a review, if you're in a yeah. traditional corporate environment, your manager says, okay, so what have you done? Or maybe exactly. even your manager doesn't say it, but they're thinking it. They're thinking it. Right? <laughs> Absolutely. Best and, be ahead of that one. Right. And I've worked in the office world before I was in journalism and everything, too. I am well aware of how, how what it's like to have a manager who has no idea what it is you do, mm-hmm. but they're responsible for your career growth somehow, you know? Um, and... That way you have all of this information that then you can take to that review. You can take to your manager and your one-on-one if you have a one-on-one and you should have a one-on-one um, and say to them, this is what I'm working on and this is what I've been doing. This is how much progress I've been making. And that's a way to kind of make your own case back to your manager that yeah. you're doing great work. But also it's a way to do it armed with information and actual data. So you don't come into a one-on-one making an emotional appeal that you're doing a great job and you deserve a raise, which we all we all deserve a raise. But, <laughs> but, but I mean, the emotional appeal is one thing, and your manager may even resonate with that emotional appeal. But when they have to go to their manager or their manager has to go to finance to get your raise approved, they need more than this person really deserves it as justification for raising your salary. And bringing that to them uh, is hugely powerful. Right. That is a productivity tip in disguise because (laughs) in the moment, it sure does take a lot of time. Yes. But it it saves you years on the other end climbing through your career, right? Yeah. And I I, I mean, it's also super cathartic. And that's one of the things personally that was so important to me was to have someplace to just write down all of these feelings. Some people do gratitude journaling. Um, I think of it kind of like that because you are writing down the things you do well and the things you're proud of. Uh, but also you're writing down all those things that made you really mad or the, the projects that didn't work out the way that you wanted them to or so-and-so got the assignment that you wanted to get or stole your idea in a meeting or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, all of that is super powerful. We're gonna take a quick break here. Stick around for more with Alan Henry. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. And we're back. In his book, Alan talks about the importance of the ERG, the Employee Resource Group. I asked him about his experience with the New York Times ERG, Black at NYT. Here's Alan. For a long time, I hesitated to join. It's not that I didn't feel like I belonged. It was more that... When I got to the Times, ERGs, and I feel like this is true for a lot of companies that have ERGs, they just kind of exist. And no one really tells you how to join, whether you should join, what they do, or anything like that. So even at the Times, I knew it existed, but I didn't know how to get involved. It makes me think we should probably tell our listeners what ERG stands for. Oh, right. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> yes, employee resource groups. Right. Um, and generally, I mean, most companies have some form of employee resource group, and a lot of them are focused on identity, like Black at NYT was, for example. But um, others are focused around interest or um, or industry group, right? So. Outside of your your specific company, there may be an industry group for disabled project managers of America or something like that. I, I made that up. I don't know if that's real. Uh, if it's not real, it should be. <laughs> but but it's it's places like that where I didn't join at first because I didn't know what I was getting myself into. And I didn't know what that meant to be a part of that group. And eventually, I went to a couple of events that the group hosted. And people came to me and said, hey, you should come to our regular meetings. And once I started going, even though I didn't have a lot to share, it just felt good being in a room of people who had that same shared experience overall as I did. Um, Another group outside of the New York Times that I joined was the Journalists of Color Slack. It's a very tight-knit community Mm -hmm. of journalists of color. And I credit that group with almost saving my life and saving my career because I was ready to leave journalism because I thought that there was no way for me to get away from these experiences. And then joining a group where other people could tell me, no, I've been there, this is what I did, or yeah, I've been there and it sucks. And sometimes just that commiseration is all I needed, just made me feel less alone. And because that's a point of marginalization, It's it's meant to push you off to the side and make you feel like you're by yourself in a corner. And by finding a group of people that you can sit with and share these experiences with, it breaks that whole thing down. It makes me think of a an experience I had once at a time where I felt like I was getting passed up. And a lot of the reason I was getting passed up is because I wasn't being taken seriously because I was a woman in an environment that was all men. Mm-hmm. And so I went to a group of peers. I had a, a peer group that I was in, about 12 people. And half the people were women like me and half of the people identified as men. And everybody had my back. Everybody mm-hmm. wanted me to succeed. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really key because ERGs exist within companies because everybody at the company wants you to succeed. Right. Right. Um, and so I laid out my problem. And all of the men had one solution to the problem. And all of the women completely had another solution. Mm-hmm. The men were like, well, you need to show those men who's boss. You need to go into that room. <laughs> you need to confront the guy. And mm-hmm. you, need to, you need to raise your voice if you need to. Mm-hmm. You do it. And you tell him to take you seriously. And my little <laughs> heart was melting because I was like, you can do that. But you don't understand. I can't do that. Not at all. <laughs> and all the women were like, no, this this is the thing that worked for me, yeah. right? Yeah. And it doesn't even matter what their strategy was. It matters that they all coalesced around a thing that they had figured out that worked for them, that helped them get ahead in the workplace as it existed. Right. And I imagine that is what an ERG group can be for you. Hopefully. I mean, I think that that's the best ones. But right. I mean, and it's one thing. It's wonderful that everybody in that room had your back. It's wonderful. It's also wonderful that the women in that room understood that you didn't have the privilege that the men in that room had. Yeah. And as much as they wanted you to be able to just go in there and lean in and and, and speak truth to power, 
sometimes you can't do that because the blowback is going to be worse than any potential benefit that you would have gotten out of Yeah. So, yes. But I think that that's the key to these kinds of groups. They are the spaces where those people will kind of deconstruct that common advice and yeah. say, no, no, no. <laughs> if you go in and you, you're lit up and fired up and tell them what for, you're going to get labeled difficult to work with or not a team player or overly aggressive or any of those negative stereotypes stereotypes that are all too often labeled or given to women in the workplace by men in the workplace. And those women that you were talking to said, no, 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 no. If you want to avoid all of that nonsense, here's what I did and here's what worked for me from actual experience as opposed to like my kind of well-intentioned desire for your success. Right. Well, so what else do you want people to take away from this book? Mm. I, I really want everyone to understand the concept of psychological safety. And I want, especially want managers and would-be managers to embrace a more empathetic style of management. Um, and that's not to say discount productivity and goals and actual achievable results in favor of an empathetic approach to management. But I do want everyone to kind of foster a sense of psychological safety on their teams where people are comfortable bringing their whole selves to work and they're comfortable and capable of accepting criticism and ideas from people who have different lived experiences than they do. And that sounds great when I say it out loud, right? But in practice on a team, it's very difficult to tell the loudest guy in the room who always has to say something in every meeting, you know, thanks for sharing your input, but I'd really like to hear from X person right now. Mm -hmm. It's hard to do that. Yeah. Um, And it's hard for a manager even to go to that person later and say, I really appreciate your candor. I really appreciate your enthusiasm, but you're sucking all the air out of the room. And I really would like it if we all worked more collaboratively. That requires some boat rocking on the part of a manager. And that's difficult to campaign for, even even though it is incredibly important. Speak to that a second. Mm -hmm. Like, how do we create an environment? I mean, you you said earlier, it is not the job of the marginalized to change a system, to mm-hmm. change a culture. In fact, they cannot do that. They don't have the power to do that. Mm-hmm. Right? We do know that managers, marginalized or otherwise, um, it is easier for them to participate in the world as it exists mm-hmm. than to change it. For sure. Um, but many, whoever they are, are very well-intentioned and want to see it changed. And furthermore, understand that changing it will deliver more value in the end. 100%. Right? Yeah. What are the constructs to help people do that? Ah, so that's, that is the tough part. Always have some kind of regular meeting on the books with your boss. When, if you're an, you're an employee, make sure that your manager has a one-on-one with you ask them for it. it. It doesn't have to be every week, but it's having some open line of communication is key, right? right. That's one thing uh, because then no one's ever surprised. And right. then that also speaks to psychological safety because the more you two talk, the more right. you, especially if you're a marginalized person and your manager is not, then the more you guys talk, the more you are aligned on kind of your team's goals, your personal goals, and how well you're doing, and what those other emotional factors are mm-hmm. that may be holding you back from real success in the workplace. So, and that's what I mean when I talk about empathetic management is how are you doing? Right. Not just how 
are the tasks I assigned you coming along, but how are you doing? Again, that's not the same as saying there was a tragic shooting, you should take a couple days off. I mean, that person may not even want that time off. Maybe they want to put their nose into work to kind of deal with it themselves. But even asking says, I see you, and I see you for who you are, and I see you as more than a cog in this machine. That means a lot. And I think that even saying that, especially to marginalized workers who often are socialized to believe that they are cogs in a machine and that they have to work twice as hard in order to find the same success as their non-marginalized coworkers, that is so powerful for them um, that it's almost an instantaneous shot in the arm of that kind of psychological safety I'm talking about. So I think that it's important for everyone to just have that opportunity to chat more often. It's really important for managers to make sure that those lines of communication are open and active, right? Mm-hmm. It's, managers like to do like, I have an open door policy. That's great, but that puts the responsibility of the of talking to you on your employee. Right. No, get out there and go talk to them. I think that's great advice for managers. Yeah. One piece of advice that I often have for employees, I'm curious what you think about it, is to Take control of that meeting that you have with your manager Mm -hmm. by coming in with a bullet list of the things to talk about and always have on the bullet list my personal growth. Now, you never have to have a thing to say about it. (laughs) You just have to remind your manager once a week. You can get to it, as I often do, and say, okay, personal growth. Oh, I'm good for that one. We can talk about that next week. Mm -hmm. But it keeps it in your manager's mind as, Mm -hmm. oh, we are collectively thinking about that. 100%. And I I spoke to... um, Kathy and Kathy, K squared. Um, <laughs> Catherine Crowley and Kathy Esther, and I for the book. And I, I'm so sorry if I mixed up their last names because they're Kathy and Catherine. But anyway, they're wonderful. They're consultants. <laughs> we'll check it. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> they're wonderful. They are. They wrote written a number of books about this exactly the concept of managing up. Right. Where I'm an employee, I feel like I am at the whim of my manager at all times, when in reality, no, you can steer some of this by pushing your ideas back up to your manager. You have that one-on-one put, like you said, put personal growth on there because every time you meet, it's going to come up. And even if you don't have anything to say, at least it came up, right? Right. But I mean, this was also, their suggestion was, this is how you get more passion work, more glamour work, by meeting with your manager and saying things like, hey, I have this really cool idea And this is how it fits into our team's priorities. And now you've made the case to your boss that you doing this thing you love is great for everyone. And you're more likely to get that glamour assignment that's going to move your career forward. Right. Um, So another thing that I appreciated uh, is that you talk very openly about the need for support and mental health. Yes, Um, for sure. That must have been a decision on your part. Talk about that decision. (laughs) Um, I, man, when I was... At Lifehacker and when I was at the New York Times, I was not in therapy. I am in therapy now. <laughs> and and um, I even host a little show on Wired's Twitch channel called Game Therapy, which is, I mean, really just me playing video games and answering life questions and things like that. But I have this joke, this running joke on the show where there's a little chibi, little adorable version of me, an animated version of me with a rainbow over his head that says therapy because I just want everyone to go to therapy. Um You don't have to struggle with these issues of uh, self-doubt, of imposter syndrome, of feeling 
alone and isolated in the workplace for whatever reason that may be, whether it is your race, your gender, your ability level, your sexuality, whatever it is, you don't have to face these things by yourself. And you may have a partner or great friends in life that you can bounce these things off to, but they're not trained professionals to help you deconstruct what's going on in your own head and piece apart where you stop and the systemic begins. Um, and I really, really find so much value in community when you don't have direct access to mental health services, but also seeking out mental health support whenever possible, uh, because it was so powerful for me personally. I can't imagine having written this book without access to it. I tell people whatever way you can find it, find it, whether it is a counselor, it is a student who is studying to be a therapist and uh, and is taking clients just to kind of get practice, talk to somebody, talk to somebody independent. Last big idea to set our listeners off on the right path forward. Ooh, I could give you a productivity one or I could give you kind of an emotional one. I, I want to get to you the emotional one first. Okay. And then leave us with the productivity okay, one. Okay, sure. Uh, the emotional one, the big, last big emotional idea that I wanted, I would communicate to everyone is you are not alone. Um, I, I, you will read this book. I hope you read this book. I hope you buy 10 copies. And by read this book and you will see not just a bunch of productivity tips, but you also see my kind of evolution as a journalist, mm -hmm. going from one of my first big journalism jobs to where I am today. Whatever you get into, whether it is in journalism, like for me, or when I was a project manager, I just park my car in a parking lot and walk into work and sit down at my desk and hope the day goes well, you're not by yourself. And the struggles that you go through are almost universally struggles that someone else has gone through. Never feel like you have to reinvent the wheel when you're trying to get over a problem that you're facing at work. I love that. And I, um, you know, at my worst in the job that I've talked about quite a bit on this show, mm. where I was like really struggling with sexism, um, I, I felt so alone. Mm -hmm. And there was a one day that I was just crying in my office with the door closed mm -hmm. and in my head thinking, I'm too old to be doing this. Right. Right. And I took a photograph of that because I just said in my head, there is going to be a time when I look back and I need to remember what this felt like. And the only way to do that is to have a picture of it. Yep. And uh, I still keep that picture just to look and be like, see, see, like, it's all right. It's all right. It's, it's all right. not like that. No, it's, it's all right. It's not like that. I so appreciate that. And also give us a good productivity tip. Good productivity tip. Um, I talked about the work diary. That was my big one. But the time to do the work diary is my favorite thing of the week, my favorite part of the week, every Friday. my For me, it's every Friday at 6 p.m. Uh, the weekly review. <laughs> the weekly review. At, okay, why 6 p.m.? Uh, well, just because it's the end of the day and I know nobody's pro probably going to bother me mm -hmm. while I'm doing my weekly review. Mm -hmm. The weekly review is part of David Allen's Getting Things Done Productivity Method. It's the only part of his productivity technique that I really like. But um, <laughs> no offense to David Allen, but he doesn't need my help to sell books. But, <laughs> but it, it's a, an, hour, uh, an hour every Friday yep. that I spend not doing work because it's very tempting to do work during a weekly review. This is time to think about work. Yep. So I step back and I say, why am I doing all of this stuff that I'm doing? 
where is this going? Where is this leading me? Is this work lined up with my career goals? Is it lined up with my personal goals? Um, and that's the time that I spend going over like all the emails I had to send or all the people who are waiting to hear from me, the people I'm waiting to hear from, the meetings that I went to, any documents and you know stuff I was supposed to read. That's a time I spend looking over all of that, getting that 10,000-foot view of the job that I'm doing yeah. and making sure that I'm not just doing busy work and not running on a wheel. I'm actually doing something that's going to move me in the direction I want to go. And it's so tempting to say, oh, so-and-so is waiting to hear back from me. Let me shoot them an email. Don't do it. <laughs> Don't do it. This is just when you're supposed to take note of the fact that so-and-so is waiting to hear back from you. And then you'd send them that email on Monday. Right. But it's just important to take that stock to say, this is what I do, and this is why I do it, and this is why it works. Um, because my other little catchphrase that I tell everyone is productivity isn't about getting more stuff done so you can just do more work. It's about getting the important stuff done so you can focus on what really matters to you. Yeah. So those things that really matter, that can be time with your family, that can be adopting or fostering a pet, that can be a passion project, that could be your side hustle. That, I hate that phrase, but you know, it's, <laughs> it, could be, it could be the great American novel that you wanna write, you know, those I, things. So that's the productivity side too. Alan, um, I love that. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. That was Alan Henry. His book, Seen, Heard, and Paid, is out now. I highly recommend it. This week on Office Hours, we're going to share our favorite productivity hacks. Come tell us what you've figured out. What's working? Join our Hello Monday team this Wednesday afternoon. You can find us live at 3 p.m. Eastern on the LinkedIn news page. Or email us for a link at hellomonday at linkedin.com. And also, it's been a while since I reminded you, but if you're listening to the show and you liked it, please rate us and leave us a review on any app you listen to us on. It really helps people find the show. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn. Our producer is Sarah Storm. Joe DeGiorgi mixed our show. Florencia Iriando is head of original audio and video. Dave Pond is head of news production. Michaela Greer and Victoria Taylor have our backs in every situation. Our music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. See you next Monday, and thanks for listening. We're just going to check your level, so get sure. excited about your breakfast. Yay! Um, I didn't have breakfast again today. Oh, again today. <laughs> again today, but I did have, I had a caffeinated crystal light before I came here. <laughs> Go. Because I cleaned the coffee pot yesterday, so I uh, I need to run it through with hot water before I brew more coffee. Look at that. Does that mean you haven't had coffee today? No, I have not. Whoa. Yeah. It, it, caffeinated crystal light packs a punch, though.